0: I'd like to read the first 11 verses of Second Peter. Notice that in these verses we find what seems to be a step-by-step progression in Christian growth and the promise that if we follow all of those steps as faithfully as we are able, a hero's welcome will be granted to us when we step through the gates of heaven. Peter says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which, we have, been, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Many thoughts are significant and common during the Christmas season, and for many of us, particularly those of us who have lived for many years, many of our thoughts during this season are of Christmas's past. And one of my memories of Christmas' past comes from a time when our children were young and living at home, and we would make annual trips to a local farm to select a Christmas tree. As I remember, we would all jam into the car, which would just be getting warm when we got to the Christmas tree farm. And there we would get out and we would trudge through snowdrifts that usually were two or three inches higher than the boots that I wore we'd walk up and down rows of seemingly hundreds of Christmas trees looking for that perfect one that was just right for us. And there were five of us, which means that there was not one, but there were five perfect trees at that farm. And, of course, the one that was selected finally was not mine. And then, having made our choice... We would leave one kid to guard that perfect tree while the rest of us separated looking for the guy with the saw and when we found him he would come to our spot and cut the tree down and drag it to our car where i'd open the lid and he would cram it into the trunk for us lower end first of course each year after i got home i would remember how much easier it is to cram a tree into a trunk than it is to get it out. Murphy has many laws and corollaries of laws that relate to our Christmas trees, and one of them is this. No matter where that initial cut is made, the stub of the tree is always two inches too short to fit into your Christmas tree holder, or the trunk of the tree is wider than your Christmas tree stand. In either case, each year I'd have to find my own saw and use it to trim the lower branches off this perfect tree, destroying its fullness and symmetry in the process, and then force what was left of it into the stand, reminding myself there is nothing in the world that is quite so sticky or resistant to cleansers of all kinds as the sap of a Christmas tree. Remember that? Then with the tree planted firmly in its stand, I take it through doors that were not designed for maneuvers of this kind. I would, uh, in fact, I think it took me about three years to be reminded that the best way to take the tree into the house is trunk end first and not top first. But then when it was the last standing in its place of honor for the season, I thought my work was done. And then I discovered that my wife had discovered that this perfect tree had a bad side. And that bad side was always the one that was out. And so I'd have to get on the floor underneath the prickly matches branches and grab the stand and turn it little by little by little at her instruction. A little to the left, a little to the left. Oh, no, nope, that's too far. Until at last the good side of that tree was facing the room. A few days later, this tree and I would resume our relationship, but this time in reverse, Now stripped of its bulbs and its ornaments, it had to be dragged out of the house and taken to the curb. And again, I think I was about three years into the process when I remembered that there was water in that stand. (laughs) Which limits the angle to which the tree can be tilted and makes the process even more difficult, of course. And I remember the joyous labor of picking dry, sharp needles out of shag carpeting. And I would imagine that many of you have been there and have known the joys of all of these parts of Christmas. But in between the alpha and the omega of my experience with our Christmas trees when the kids were small was that delightful time in which those trees stood beautifully and creatively decorated by Carla, my wife, and their mother, symbolizing for us the joy of the season and the warmth of our love for one another. It's interesting to consider that we go to a Christmas tree farm or a lot in search for that perfect tree. We give it an honored place in our homes, but that perfect tree is not really perfect to us in its natural state. The most beautiful of fir trees brought into a home just doesn't quite Do it. And out from the basement or the garage or the attic come those blue plastic bins with all of our decorations in them, you remember? The ones we're always going to label and always forget to label, have to go through every one to find everything. And then we cover that perfect tree with our bright lights and our ornaments and our tinsel and our garland and our popcorn. And on the top of it, we put a star or a spire or a snowflake or an angel. And only then... When that perfect tree is barely visible, is it really a complete and perfect representation to us of the season? Think about what we do to those trees. We take them out of their natural habitat. We select one according to our purposes and tastes, We bring that tree into our home, cover it with our decorations, and only then is that tree an object of usefulness and joy to us. Think about all of that. And think how perfectly that symbolizes our relationship with God and God's intentions for us. We are born with a nature and in a habitat that is alien to our God the world is not God's friend. People are not the children of God who love and adore him by nature, and we were one of them at one time. But God chose us to be his own, and then he brought us into his home where we are assured by his word that we will dwell forever, not just for a season. And then we discover that God desires to decorate our lives with reflections of his own nature and signs of his goodness to us. On this third Sunday in Advent, I'd like to talk with you about the decorated life. The desire of God to decorate or adorn our lives affects every part of our lives. We sometimes compartmentalize life, and we agree that God has a right to be interested in this part of life, but we keep this part for ourselves. We can't do that if we're going to know God well and serve him well. All of life belongs to God, every part of life. God intends to decorate. It affects our minds. In Romans 12, Paul said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And one of the first steps in our text, in our growing usefulness to God, comes when we add to our virtue knowledge. Having our minds filled with the knowledge of the scriptures and our prayers marked by our desire to understand God's word, it in fact is the beginning of righteousness. In Proverbs 23, we read that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And it is the will of God that our minds be preoccupied by the contemplation of his word for the first psalm pronounces a blessing on the person who lives in that condition. God wants to decorate our minds with his truth. He also wants to decorate other parts of our unseen lives, our feelings and our passions, our dreams and our aspirations, our attitudes and our character. In the Ten Commandments, we're instructed not to covet, and elsewhere in the law, we're commanded to love God with all that we are. By his spirit, God offers us peace and joy, which are a part of the the secret person. And in his word, he insists that we learn to control our temper. The need to pray, the desire for worship, the shame that we feel when we're reminded of our sin are all signs that the invisible hand of God is at work within us, molding us and shaping us and decorating us. God also wants to decorate our behavior. Much of the parts of the Bible that describe the godly life speak of behavior, the way that we act, the things that we do or don't do. For example, we read all those things required are forbidden by the Ten Commandments and other parts of the law. And in Galatians 5, Paul gives us a list of acts that are subject to the anger and the judgment of God. And all of this reminds us that the God who knows the hearts also observes the lives of people. Christians who are informed about their faith understand that the only good deed is a deed that is completely motivated by godly thoughts and intentions, But the wise Christian also understands that it is better to do the right thing for the wrong reason than to leave the right thing undone. There are many things that God indicates that he expects of us, and he expects us to conform to his will, whether we understand or not why we should do those things, whether we like what he calls us to do or not. The life of a growing Christian is marked more and more by conformity, and obedience in the realm of his behavior. And the adornment that God intends for us extends into the area of relationships as well. Again, many of the commandments of the Bible are intended to influence or control the ways that we relate to others. And particularly is this true in the most intimate relationships of life, those we know in marriage and in the family. The instructions of scripture to love your neighbor as you love yourself. To treat other people the way that you wish that they would treat you, to turn the other cheek, to go the second mile, to bear one another's burdens are examples of general principles that we are to apply to human relationships that should be applied particularly to relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children. The Christian husband and father, made strong and righteous by his knowledge of the Lord and the scriptures desiring to lead and provide for his family as Christ leads and provides for the church is an example of a believer whose life is being decorated by God. The Christian wife and mother, made virtuous by her love for the Lord and his word, and made willing to accept the leadership of the man at whose whose side she stands in the training of their children, is an example of a believer whose life is being decorated by God, and the Christian young person, his eagerness to honor his father and mother, perhaps made easier by their godliness, giving his youthful attention to the word of God to keep his way pure, is an example of a believer whose life is being decorated by God. Perhaps nowhere more clearly is the quality of a Christian's devotion to God revealed than in these most precious and potential of all human relationships. I don't mean to trivialize all of this but imagine for a moment that the season for decorating has come and God gets out of his easy chair and climbs the steps to the attic in his home in the heavens and start bringing down his plastic bins of decorations. He has to make several trips and at the bottom of the steps quite a pile of those bins begins to accumulate and each of these bins is a passage of scripture that discusses the ways in which god wishes to decorate my life and your lives as he opens them one by one this is what we hear he opens one that is marked galatians 5 where we read that the fruit of the spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He opens another that is marked Colossians 3, and we hear, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, And above all these things, put on love with the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Another he has labeled 1 Corinthians 13, where we read that love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own it is not easily provoked. Love thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Another is Mark Matthew 5, where we hear Jesus say, blessed are the poor in spirit, and those who mourn, and the meek, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and the merciful, and the pure in heart and the peacemakers. And in our text, in 2 Peter 1, we hear, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. This is not a complete list of the decorations in all of God's boxes. But this is enough to get me started, and I presume it's enough to get you started as well. And I remind you that these lists that we find in the Bible are not like a smorgasbord. It isn't for you to me for, and me to go through them and decide, well, this one seems easy, but this is hard. I like this one. I don't like that one, and to pick and choose among them. These are all, all of God's will for all of us and all of his people everywhere. The Bible also speaks to us of the displeasure known by God when he sees an undecorated life. You remember reading the parable of the talents in Matthew 25? There were three servants. They all came to give an account of themselves. Two of them had been fruitful with their master's possession. One of them had not. And with him, the master was not pleased. In 1 Corinthians 3, we read of people working on the church, not the physical church, of course, but the spiritual body of the church. The foundation is Jesus Christ. We build on that foundation. The caution there is to be very careful how we build. And we are reminded that there are some who build upon that foundation with materials that are worthless. And God is not pleased. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable of the sower, the man who went out to sow, and some of the seed was wasted. It fell on barren soil and thorny soil and weedy soil, and the sower was not pleased. And then our use in scripture reading this morning, I am the vine and you are the branches. Jesus speaks of those people who apparently are Christians whose lives give little or no evidence of their love for Jesus Christ and his transforming power working within them. And we are told that they are eventually cut from the vine and cast into the fire. But on the other hand, the scriptures make it even more plain that God delights in lives that have been decorated by signs of his grace. In Matthew 25, the servants that brought the prophets from what they had invested for their master are praised for their faithfulness. In 1 Corinthians 3, those who build with valuable materials whose work abides receive a reward. In Matthew 13 and elsewhere, Jesus speaks of the great value of a good harvest to a farmer, and in John 15, the master of the vineyard prizes and prunes those branches that bear fruit. Now, This distinction between God's pleasure with fruitfulness and displeasure with barrenness bring me to one final point. Our understanding of the scripture reminds us that for his own purposes that are mysterious to us, God has moved among the sons of men and from all of those who by nature in their freedom would say no to him has made some of us alive and caused us to say yes to the gospel. This is the second birth of which Jesus speaks, and you and I participated no more in the second birth than we did in the first. But we also understand that for the will of God, the triumph in our lives as believers, in order for us to be fully adorned with the signs of his marvelous grace, we have to cooperate. Christmas is drawing near at 6 o'clock in the evening. Although the evening is young, it's dark outside because of changes in the in the schedule of the days. And there's a frantic knock at your front door. You go to the door, and you throw it open, and there's the man and woman who live next door to you, obviously in deep distress. You invite them inside. You ask them, what's the matter? She tries to speak, and sobbing, she says, please come and help us find our And the rest of the sentence is slurred by her tears and emotions so that you can't understand what she's saying. Your first thought is that maybe the new puppy that they just bought for their children has gotten out and is lost on this cold night and they want help finding the child or the puppy. And then you wonder, I wonder if one of the children is missing, but imagine your surprise when she's able to get a hold of herself and she blurts out our Christmas tree is missing. Just this morning, it was there in the living room, she said. We left for just a little while to run a few errands, and when we came home, it was gone. Please help us find it. Now, this is silly. Christmas trees don't run away, do they? They stand exactly where we put them, and they stay there until we decide to move them. But in the Old Testament, we read of a man that God intended to decorate with signs of his grace, who heard that God was coming and he hid in the bushes. In Psalm 139, David asks the plaintive question, where can I hide from your presence? As if he would hide if he could. Unlike Christmas trees, there are times when you and I hide from God and we flee from his presence. We don't admit to others. In fact, we don't even admit to ourselves that that is what our, we are doing. But too often in life, we fill life with things that have nothing to do with God. So that if someone says, do you read the Bible? Oh, I don't have time. Do you go to church? Do you pray? Oh, I don't feel the need to. And in effect, what we are doing, even as his redeemed children, and every one of us does this at times in our thoughts, in our behavior, is that we run or we hide from God, who wants to transform our lives and fill our lives with evidences of his grace and his glory. Or imagine this, it's Christmas morning, one of the happiest days of the year. You come into the living room with your children, eager to read the Christmas story to remind everyone of the real meaning of the day, and then open the gifts that represent your love for one another, but to your shock, when you turn on the lights, you find that all of the beautiful ornaments in the tree have been thrown against the walls and are now shattered on the floor, and the tree stands before you with two of its long boughs folded across its chest, as if to say scornfully, I like me just the way I was. I don't need your baubles to be beautiful. Now again, this is silly, The trees that we place in our homes have no understanding of the meaning of the season, regardless of what some people tell their children, and no will to resist. But you and I have such a will. And with this in mind, the Bible urges us not to harden our hearts and to be careful that we don't grieve the Holy Spirit. All of us come to this time with pleasant memories of decorating our homes and our trees for the season. We chose a tree for our use. We took it out of its natural habitat and brought it into our homes, and then we adorned it according to our tastes and purposes, and it became beautiful and useful in our sight. May the desire of every one of us be to give God the freedom to decorate our lives with those virtues and acts that are pleasing and useful to him, may our common goal be to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ in order that our lives might increasingly give glowing testimony of his goodness and his power. Let us pray. Our Father, there is not a one of us in this room who has no need to confess to you that there are times when our minds are closed and our hearts, our hard, and our spirits resist the work of your spirit in our lives, in our homes, in our relationships, in every facet of life. Oh God, we pray that with tears we might acknowledge this as the sin that it is. May we become increasingly pliable in your hands. May you be given more and more freedom to work your will in us in order that our lives might become beautiful and useful symbols of your grace and your glory and your love. And for this, we give you our thanks in Jesus' name.